0: One day, I was driving my kids, and we were in a rollover car accident. And I had one of those moments, like we all survived. We all walked away with virtually no injuries. It was just like, maybe I'm supposed to do more than just focusing on making a profit. Maybe my purpose is to be focused on making a difference in the world somehow. I had one of those moments, like, you should be open to maybe different things. I loved my job at ADP. I hadn't been thinking about leaving at all, but I just started to be open to what else might be out there for me. And then somebody called me one day and they said, we know somebody, they're on the board, they're looking for somebody who likes to do new things. And would you wanna talk to them?
1: In a corporate world where all employees have great leaders with no egos that create fun cultures where people can do their best work, the employees and companies thrive while doing great things for the customers themselves and each other.
2: Well, we know that rarely happens. I'm Jeff Palaccio. I have been a leader for over 40 years for every t-shirt size company from small 16 employees to extra large over 1 million. Please join me while I interview outstanding leaders that will share stories of great leadership and not so great. It will help you become a better leader while poking fun at all the crazy shit that happens in corporate America.
1: Hi, I'm Joe Deshawn, and welcome to The Corporate Couch with Jeff Palacio. Today, Jeff is interviewing Angela Kreps. Angela is the co-founder and CEO of Solution Brokers, a consulting group offering fractional C-suite executives at a fraction of the price of hiring a full-time executive. She has a bachelor of science in journalism, mass communications and advertising from Kansas State University. Among other C-suite and sales positions, she was the president and CEO of BioKansas for 9 years. You can learn more about Angela at Solution Brokers Dot U.S. Let's listen as Jeff talks to Angela.
2: Angela, I'd like to welcome you to the Corporate Couch today.
0: Thank you. I'm so glad to be here.
2: Yes, you and I met. God, it was right before the pandemic. It was an event that you were sponsoring with uh, Mark Schaefer and uh, Brendan Filbert, and it was late November, uh, right before Thanksgiving of 2019, and then four months later, the world changed. Um, but, uh, I know we have some people in common that, uh, is great and full disclosure. Um, my oldest daughter is, uh, at the hospital right now. She's uh, delivering a, a grandchild, uh, today, hopefully, and this will be published by the time she's born. But, uh, if I sound that excited, is,
0: that is so exciting. Yeah. I mean, what an amazing day for you and to take time to talk to me when well, maybe it's a little diversion to keep you um occupied while you're sitting on pins and needles waiting for this magical time
2: yes i'm a I'm a professional, just like uh, Jesse <laughs> is a yeah Jesse Palmer and the golden uh, bachelor on the wedding. his wife was uh actually in, in labor, possibly I don't know, but that that I'm a professional. I don't get paid as much as jesse Palmer, but uh, it's, it's all good.
0: But maybe you could, I could, you know, I mean, there you go. Anything's possible.
2: Um, yeah. And it's Scotty Meyer. Uh, Scotty IE is my granddaughter's uh, name. So there we go.
0: Oh, she's uh, already been named. Yes. Oh uh,
2: yeah. So
0: that's yeah. A, so we'll just dedicate this session yeah. to Scotty yeah. and everything possible.
2: Love it. Love it. So there you go, Scotty. Um, well, Angela, like I said, I love your career. You're uh, a gift to the Kansas City community or a giver and a connector and always trying to help people. And you're uh, very grateful about it, things that have happened in your life. So let's, let's start with a fun question, though. Um, okay. Even people that know you a little bit, what one thing about you would surprise them?
0: I would say that I started out early in my career as a hog farmer in 4-H. Mm-hmm. My brother and I, we raised pigs he always was able to pick the better pig. And maybe that's why I'm a little bit competitive now because like, I didn't know what it was about pig choosing, like the piglet, like when you you pick the pig when they're a piglet. So I always said, you know, he always got the better pig. And like, I was curious about that because they're, they're in the same pen, they're eating the same stuff. It's just that mine's one and his is the other, right? And usually we could tell them apart because there were different colors, but, or at least had some different markings, but his pig was always a better pig.
2: Maybe, so, maybe he had like, he's more of a, you know, a pig mentality than you. So he had an intuitive bond, maybe, you know, it's like picking the horses, right? At the racetrack, I mean.
0: <laughs> well, we did that too. We did that too, but I didn't get paid anything for that. Cause I was always really bad. I grew up in Southwest Kansas. And there was a racetrack in Raton, New Mexico, and my dad was a pharmacist, and so we like didn't ever really take big vacations. But when we would go do something on the weekend, we would go over to Raton to the horse races. And again, I I'm always picking the losers. I always pick the one that you know they they didn't ever win. I never made any money. He'd give me five bucks. I'd lose the five bucks. It was the shortest entertainment that ever. You know, he would go. My brother. My brother, somehow, he would pick and then he'd get money and then he could bet on another race and then he could bet on another race. And me, it's like, I'm just tagging along.
2: That's <laughs> I funny. never pick a winner. That's funny.
0: Pigs or horses.
2: There you go. <laughs> well, you're the first uh, guest, I believe, out of about 70 that, have, uh, that was a hog farmer. So there you go. You have <laughs> <Okay>. that distinction. <laughs>
0: okay. I love it. I'll wear it proudly. We did it for a number of years. I think it really taught me a lot about discipline and responsibility at a young age. I think that maybe our dad had us do it because it gave us something to do in the summertime. Sure. <laughs> keep us out of trouble, keep us out of the house. Right. Um, we would get on our little bikes. The pen where we kept our pigs was north of town. It was, and our town wasn't very big, maybe 3,500 people, 4,000 people. But we lived on the south side of town and the pig farm was all the way on the north side of town. We'd get on our little bikes and we would just ride up basically the the last paved road in the town all the way from our house to the pig farm. And in the summertime, sometimes it was really super hot. And he was my older brother. So he would always, he had the better bike. He could ride faster than me. (laughs) I've been the underdog my whole life thanks to all of these early starts.
2: Well, uh, Angela, I usually don't do this, but I have a Mike Wallace type question for you right now. So I'm going to put you on the spot. Do you okay. eat, do you eat bacon today?
0: I, I like bacon.
2: Okay, good.
0: <laughs> I mean, I think that's part of the reason why pigs exist. Pigs exist to teach us about how to care for, you know, others that need us to care for them. And then they also exist to serve a purpose, which is everything's better with bacon.
2: There you go. I work for and Engelheim Animal Health and we supported not only cats and dogs, but pigs, swines with vaccines and other uh, medical products. And they had a saying there, you either uh, love bacon or you're wrong. So there you go. Uh,
0: (laughs) uh, Yeah, that's right.
2: Besides, uh, raising uh, being a hog farmer, what was fun for you growing up in your uh, town of
0: 3,500? Yeah, I, my dad, like I told you a minute ago, my dad was a pharmacist. And well, I think my first job was in third grade. I would walk to the pharmacy after school. And I think the practicality of it was because my mom was going back to get her master's degree. She became a math and science teacher. But I think. Up until third grade, she was a stay-at-home mom. And then I think in third grade, she started going back to finish her, finish her education because when my mom and dad got married. Um, my dad finished his education, but my mom, they got pregnant right away. Right. So I think my mom had gone back to school to finish her education. And I started, I'm not sure why my brother didn't go to, to work at the pharmacy, but I did. And- My dad had me start like, you know how these leadership programs and fortune, you know, 500 companies, you go do this for a while and that for a while. Well, he kind of did that with me. Like I I learned how to do inventory and I learned how to do the shipping and receiving. I learned how to do deliveries, but only the ones that I could walk to because obviously I was in third grade. But the job that stuck for me was engraving. I was the engraver. So the engraving machine was in the basement of the pharmacy. It was dark. It was kind of scary because the basement is where all the old image has pill bottles and all of this kind of stuff. But I go down to the basement. There was no one else there. I get over the creepy thing and you turn on this light and it was like there were no windows. So that was like the only light was this light that I would turn on. And then I did a lot of trophies in the beginning like the trophies that you get on the 4th of July. In our hometown, the JC's had contests, like the pie eating contest and the hot dog eating. I would make the little engraved brass signs that went on the trophies. Sure, wow. Yeah, I made a bunch of really bad ones in the beginning, I think, but I got better. And I could do either um, script font or I could do just lettering. There were two options. And they, you would follow, you would, it was this device. And on one hand, you'd hold it down on the brass plate. And with the other hand, you'd follow the letters. So it wasn't like I had good penmanship or anything. It's just that I could push down the two levers at the same time.
2: Wow. And you, yeah. So you, you have a a fail forward mentality. It was, you know, you you didn't fear failure. That was good. You learned that in third grade. Um, Yeah, did you have, so what, did you want to be a a pharmacist when you grew up or an engraver? What was your kind of, hey, when (laughs) I'm an adult, I'm going to be this. What was this for you?
0: Yeah, I thought about that. I was really fascinated by the uh, pharmaceutical industry, Um, you know, and it's kind of funny that I spent part, I've spent the last, the latter part of my year and my career in bioscience, which is, you know, really related to getting new drugs to market, particularly here in Kansas City. So that has been like so much fun because it's just kind of brought that back like full circle. But I guess early on, I I thought I was going to be an attorney. That's really what I thought I wanted to be. I knew I didn't want to be a teacher. My mom was a teacher. I knew I didn't want to be a Catholic priest because I I just didn't. Well, you couldn't, first of all. (laughs) Well, I couldn't. (laughs) That wasn't even a possibility. But even if I could, I remember telling my dad, like, even if I could – I wouldn't want to do that. Right. So, yeah, I did think about pharmacy, but my parents didn't ever really encourage me to do like following their footsteps kind of thing. Yeah, I thought I was going to be an attorney. But when I got to college, I just wanted to be finished with a four year degree. I couldn't imagine continuing on with um, education, which is kind of funny because I do consider myself a lifelong learner, you, you know, so it's kind of like I got to continue to get an education a different way. Right. But
2: Yeah. And I think part of it is, you know, for me, I, um, I would put myself in the same category as a lifelong learner. And I love, I love school. I love college. I had two goals in college. One was uh, do, you know, get the best GPA possible and to have fun. I accomplished both. But you know, unlike some of my friends, I was like, they're like, oh, I don't want to leave college. I'm like, no, four years. I put it all, all out. I'm, I'm done. I'm next step of my career. Let's get it going. So, um, so, uh, did you, I know you graduated K State with a Bachelor of Science in Journalism and Mass Communication. So, what was your initial kind of declared major? Uh, because you wanted to be an attorney. So, I, or did it, was it always that? And why, and why did you go to journalism and mass communication?
0: In high school, I really loved speech and debate. I thought I was going to be an attorney. So, pre law. So you really can do anything, right? You can really take whatever, um, undergraduate. So um, I just decided to, I I really enjoyed math. I was like one of those geeky math kids in high school. Like I'd take all the math classes. Like I loved my math teacher. We called him Tiny Ted. His name was Ted Metcalf, but he he was a shorter guy. But he just was so amazing. He just like made math come alive. And so I loved math, and I loved speech and debate. So I was on the debate. We won the state championship. You know, I think all of that kind of together, just sort of that academic stuff, made me kind of want to go down the path of of being an attorney. And so I took a lot of those kinds of classes. You know, besides all of the basic things my freshman year at K State, but I got my first B. It was devastating. I was in Calc One. It was hard. It was so hard. Yeah. Like my dad said, you know, do you want to start right in with with Calc One? I said, yeah, I've already been through Calc Three in high school, so you know they didn't have any of those advanced placement kinds of things, right? Right. But the the requirements were kind of kind of open ended, like with what math class you took. So I thought it was going to be a cakewalk. Well, I was wrong. It was so hard. So I think we maybe just. I don't know. Maybe the way that we learned math, the the calculus that we did in high school, we got to. I mean, I, I think I think I remember doing most of my work myself. But there were three of us that were in those higher level math classes, and if we ever got stuck, we'd work on it together, right. you know, and and kind of help each other. So I think I must have depended on the other guys way too much because <laughs> when I got into that calc one class at K State, it was just yeah. like, oh man. I got my first C on a test. I literally thought I might die. I called my mom and dad. I said, Dad, I can't believe this is happening. Wow. He told me I was going to be fine.
2: So, um, did you have aspirations to write? Because you've got a journalism and mass communications degree uh, at K State.
0: I hadn't, up until that time, I had never really spent much time writing. I enrolled in a journalism class just to you know, give it a try. Maybe somebody else in the house was in journalism and it piqued my curiosity. You know, I like to, I like learning new things. I took this journalism class and ended up getting a job at the Collegian, which is the campus newspaper. And I loved it. I loved the beat. I love talking to people and learning about whatever it was that was their thing. On my beat, I was able to, I covered um, the land and lectures. And so, you it was there was so much learning you just got to talk to really smart people and kind of just get the you know the other angle about what was going on or get the inside story about you know what was happening and i just found that is very very interesting and i became really interested in advertising my dad had always loved advertising and i guess my parents tell me from like the time i was really little i wasn't interested in the tv until the until the ads came on. And hmm. then there I was, you know, I was interested in the ads. So, in doing the journalism, I got exposed to a really uh, cool professor in the advertising department. And so I just started taking a lot of those classes. And that's how I ended up getting a degree in journalism.
2: Uh, Angela, what was your first job out of college once you graduated and how'd you get it?
0: So, my first job out of college was working at a bank. It was called Money Card of Kansas, and it was actually three banks. It was First National Bank and Union State Bank and First State Bank, I think, maybe. You know, this was right before all of the banks consolidated. But the three banks had gotten together, and and this was back in the time when people wrote checks, like there wasn't a debit card, believe it or not. There was a time when it was either cash or checks. The three banks had gotten together to issue a check guarantee card. And so my job was to go around to all of the merchants in town. I was in Wichita and teach them how to use the check guarantee card and to encourage them to do that. And I'd write call reports. So that's what I did every single day is like went out and called on these merchant banks. I mean, on these merchants and then take the information back. I had to put reports together for the the three. They were vice presidents of the bank. So they were. I, I don't know, in charge of bank card, which was an ATM card. At some point, they decided to convert the money check guarantee card, the money card check guarantee card to a debit card. And so my job changed because you know that role was going away because it was a conversion process. And so they made me a project manager in the bank card division at Intrust Bank, which was at that time, First National Bank. They were getting ready to go through branding um, from First National to Entrust, and they had decided to make me a sales officer. So I think I spent maybe a year as a project manager, and I was mostly responsible for affinity cards. So this, I don't know if you're a K-State or a KU grad, you could have the the Wildcat card or the Jayhawk card. One of my first jobs was jazzing up those those credit cards because they were they were imprinted with a stamped emblem when i first took the job and then there was a new opportunity to brand the card and so the the first one we did was the jayhawk card and somebody had taken the jayhawk and given us the artwork and we just turned it at an angle and it was white with the 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 red and blue jayhawk and those cards the um, the number of cards that got sold that year after we implemented the the new design it was just like off the charts it was just unbelievable so then we decided to do that on all the cards so then we took the K State card and we put this was um, the Power Cat was available but Willie was still really the main mascot the Power Cat was just being used in kind of athletics so we used Willie and we did the same thing we blew him up real big and put him at an angle. And the cars just started flying out. So that was super fun. So I guess they thought maybe I had something to do with that, which I really didn't. I really was just in the right place when the technology was changing. So they decided to make me a sales officer at the bank. This was back when banks, they really didn't sell. But they they sent me to all these classes about sales and what sales was and how to be in sales. And I really liked that. I, and so, for a number of years, I embarked on this the sales and producer part of my career. Yeah. And, so did
2: um, you? So yeah. So you really got into your kind of advertising. You know. You know. You know. Rebranding the the cards, which you know was kind of in your wheelhouse, and started in childhood when you loved the commercials, but so did you just when you were exposed to sales because that was your first job out of school and then you got you know when you went to intrust and had that success rebranding the cards was that it was just like wow i really like sales because i mean you're you know your early career up until 2005 was really all about sales right
0: yeah it really was they gave me someone to manage and he was in charge of and i got to like and you know here i am like 20 years old and I'm like helping to hire somebody and then training them. And then I gave him the agent bank relationships. So part of my responsibility was not only the cards and the card programs, but this national debit card, getting it rolled out and working with the merchants on accepting that, but also getting all of our agent bank relationships to do the same thing. Because we made um, fee revenue off of the transactions. so when the cards were used at, at retail it was more profitable for the banks to have the cards be used than the checks so we were at that moment where we were trying to have the merchants encourage the acceptance of the cards even though it cost them it was better for the bank and the bank had expense but it was less than that the expense for checks because if you can imagine like you write a check they had couriers like people in vans that drove around from location to location to process these checks. I mean, it was just a very archaic sort of, uh, they were very labor intensive process back in the day for checks. So, I mean, I just had a lot of opportunities to get exposed to things that I didn't realize were such a gift early in my career. And yes, I did love sales, but it was mostly about making change happen, figuring out what levers to push and pull so that a change that seemed so much more that just made more sense to get that in place. And I think after I became sales officer at the bank, maybe I got a call one day, it was a recruiter and they said, you know, we're, it was so funny. I learned what recruiters do. They say, we're looking for somebody. Do you know someone who, and basically they're just saying you, but they didn't ever really come out and say that. Well, I didn't realize that. I didn't realize that was the, I didn't realize that was the game. So They were saying, you know, we're looking for somebody who could do this and do that. And I said, well, um, that might be something I could do. And they said, oh, well, you know, would you be it? (laughs) So, (laughs) So I ended up leaving the bank for this data processing company in Hutchinson. So I left Wichita to go to Hutchinson. And then I was responsible for building this program and selling it really to the other banks. So it was really the same thing that I was doing at interest, but just doing it for a different company and getting paid more. So I found myself in a situation of being a single parent at that time. And I was a little bit motivated by having the opportunity to generate maybe a little bit more because I remember working at the bank and wondering if I was ever going to be able to afford to go on vacation. No. Like I just didn't think that that was ever going to be possible because I wasn't making enough money trying to figure out like how that happened. So I got this other opportunity. And if sales went well, I got paid more. So I'm going to say the reason I really got excited about sales was because you could have a little bit more control over how much money you made. And then I did that for a year or two. And then I got another call. Maybe you know somebody. And that was for ADP. And ADP... Was it just an incredible company? They invested so much in teaching us about the sales process and you know the, sort of the science of sales. And w- what I found was so amazing is that it wasn't really so much about um, selling stuff. It was identifying what problem you're solving, and then whether or not you had something that was actually going to solve that that problem. It was value based selling. It was like this whole it was transformational with I I think the approach that I had about selling. And I wasn't jaded about sales or you know, I mean the sales people that came to call on my dad were just really great people. They were people from Marion Labs that would call on my dad about some new drug. I remember one time one of them took us the whole family out to dinner. And I just thought, what a great career. Wow. You know, so like all of the things about sales in my experience as a child were good and I loved advertising and all of that. So that's a really long way to answer your question. I really loved sales. I still love sales today.
2: So what I'm really, I mean, you have so many things you've done that fascinate me in your career, but what I, I would love for you to talk about, I mean, ADP, as you discussed, they, they really invested in you from a training standpoint. I mean, I think even today they're one of the best you know, training programs, uh, for especially, uh, uh, young adults that come out of college and get trained in terms of uh, selling. But I, th- and, and again, titles mean nothing, but, you know, you progress through your ADP career. You know, I think you had a nine plus almost 10 year run there, but I, I would love that you tell the listeners like you're so you're at adp you're the major account district manager so you're running you know some kind of high-end companies in terms of an employee size so you go from there though you know basically in you know peo payroll hr type technology sales and become the ceo president of bio kansas so what was that was there a plan there i mean because you're not only becoming i mean you jump you know many titles you know and again uh bio kansas smaller than adp obviously but i mean to go from a district manager to a ceo as well as entirely change industries tell 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 us about that
0: i've told this story a few times because people are always a little bit shocked and i I guess maybe everybody in my circle was pretty much shocked too, when that happened, you know, I, I I loved my work at ADP, you know, and I was there for a long time and I enjoyed my work. I wasn't looking to do anything any different. I mean, even after seven, eight, nine years, I'd made it to president's club. I was in a great division. I was working with um, employers up to a, a thousand employees and I had a great territory. I was in Kansas city and a lot of my clients were um, downtown and in the plaza. I mean, I had a great territory with really cool companies, and I got to work with the CFO and CEO of those companies and learn about like what vision they had for the company and why they were considering outsourcing their payroll or human resources, because they were really trying to stay in their lane, and so it's the whole value of outsourcing. I guess that whole process of exposure to so many companies as they were growing allowed me to get to see inside those companies and the strategies that they, they put in place. I was just a small part of it as a payroll vendor, but I got to see it while the plans were being put into place. And then I got to watch those companies as those transformations happen and they stayed with ADP because sometimes I would... I was able to start with maybe payroll and then add human resources or maybe add time and attendance to work with them while they grow. So I was just really curious about what other opportunities might be out there, all because one day I was driving my kids, my my three daughters. So I had a 13-year-old, a three-year-old, and a three-month-old. We were going out to see my mom, and we were in a rollover car accident. And I had one of those moments, like we all survived. We all walked away with, you know, virtually no injuries. I just had, like, I had a chipped tooth was the worst of it. I had, it was just like, I'm, maybe I'm supposed to do more than just focusing on making a profit. You know, maybe my purpose is to be focused on making a difference, you know, in the world somehow. So I just, I had one of those moments like, you should be open to maybe different things. So when that happened, I started to, so then I would take the call. I loved my job at ADP. I hadn't been thinking about leaving at all, but I just started to be open to what else might be out there for me. And then somebody called me one day and they said, we know somebody, they're on the board, they're looking for somebody who likes to do new things. And- you're smart. I don't know. Would you want to talk to them? And I said, well, I'm always curious to talk. And, you know, I've actually been trying to be open to these things. So I met with these folks and like, I was really curious about it because they were talking about something that would be pretty transformational for Kansas, for the bioscience industry. It was a $250 million initiative. I could see it. I could see like this going the wrong way because bioscience could be taken the wrong way. And I was just a really aware of like the different segments of the state of Kansas and how to promote an initiative like this to get to galvanize more public support and to leverage, I mean, it was just like a really cool strategic process and I could just see it. And so as we had more of these conversations, I met with Jay Mashkey was leading a search and I remember Jay at one point just started shaking his head and he said, I need to tell you something, Angela, you're really an outside the box candidate for this position. And I was like, I know. I said, so are, what are you seeing in most of the other people that you're talking to? And he said, well, they're all PhDs. And I was like, I could see that. I mean, I could see why that would be attractive to the board to look at PhD scientists I said, so since I'm the out of the box, outside the box candidate, here's what I'm going to tell you. If I were to approach this, this is the way I would do it, blah, 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 kind of went into the whole thing. We finished that round. And I guess I was the last one standing. And they said, we want to do another round with some more people like you, maybe people with a sales background, because they liked the vision that you put forward. So we did a whole other round. And they ended up offering me the job and i ended up taking it and we had a grand time i didn't realize at the time that i was putting together a 100 day plan but that's basically what i was doing in these early conversations with the, one of their board members and talking about like so how does this thing catch on and then how could you really make some transformational change because there's a dearth of capital there's a burgeoning bioscience industry but we have all of these assets so How do you string all of that together into an initiative that can actually create momentum that could grow jobs and maybe even attract more industry and maybe even attract more funding, maybe even get some investors here. It was like calculus of a different kind. It was like taking all of these things together and figuring out the variables and putting the pieces together. And we had an absolute blast with that initiative. I mean, we went from, I don't know, not really being on the map to being one of the top 10 fastest growing bioscience hubs in the country. It was because folks, you know, from industry and and academia and from the public sector got together and said, we've got lottery proceeds. What if we put it into like a moonshot? What if we do something like unexpected? And I think it was just really a great time. It was just so many existing assets coming together in a great way. And I loved that work. The only reason that I left that work, you know, purely personal reasons. My dad had passed away and my mom started having health problems and I had one of those moments again, like I just knew that I didn't wanna look back and wish I'd paid attention.
2: I would love for you to maybe expand on your thought process during the interview you know again you know you're an outside candidate or out of the box candidate you know most people would look at people with you know most recruiters as well as companies that are recruiting for the position look at people with similar titles or higher titles than district manager did you ever have hesitation about hey can I do this i'm i'm you know I'm in a my comfort zone i love my job at adp you had this you know, kind of life-changing moment during the rollover, but did you ever have hesitation? And what advice would you give people that are in a similar situation that want to take that big leap to something?
0: I think that a lot of times we hold ourselves back just because we put ourselves in boxes. I think we're all capable of more than we ever thought possible. It's just that we don't allow ourselves to do it. You know, that's society and that's whatever you limitations you grow up with or or things that people put on you, I think we're all capable of more than we give ourselves credit for. A transformational moment for me at ADP, and maybe this was part of it, was strengths finders. So that whole paradigm shifted my understanding of myself. So I take this strengths finder, you know, I get all geeked out about sort of the research behind it, you know, like interviewing all these really successful people and You know, I like that kind of stuff. And I'm always real curious about what are my strengths? What are my weaknesses? Getting better at what I'm not good at because we all need to get better. So find those places where I'm not as good. And that would drive a lot of my learning. I try to learn more about the stuff I wasn't good at. When I took the Strengths Finder, it just shifted that whole perspective. So it shifted it inside of me. Like if I focus on being good, and getting better at what I'm naturally good at imagine how much further I can get rather than worrying about the stuff that I'm not good at naturally the things that aren't gifts for me I mean I, I looked at it like an Olympic athlete if you take somebody who is like proficient in the hurdles and you put them on shot put which is what happened to me in high school like everybody had to do everything because we weren't very It's not a very big place. You know, there are 72 people in my graduating class. So we all had to do everything. When I figured out that if you just focus on getting better at what you're already good at, imagine what's possible. So then when this challenge was put in front of me and I said, well, it doesn't really matter what my title is or whatever. It's like, I, I can see this. I can do this. And maybe that's what I'm supposed to be doing because i have had that moment
2: we'll go back to your after you left uh bio kansas but uh, and you know we've met uh, several times uh, over coffee and um i had a father that uh had uh, early onset a- alzheimer's uh in my preteens, and 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 he passed uh when i was uh, 19 but so talk about your work there because a lot of people i think are dealing with aging parents and Alzheimer's, I mean, is a just a terrible disease. And I know you've done some things to help people that are going through that process uh, with their parents. So, tell us about that.
0: It's a horrible disease. My mom's going through that right now. She has what's called late disease. It's and and she's given me permission to talk about this. I mean, God bless her. She's like a teacher. She wants if if I can share information that's helpful that eases somebody else's way. She wants me to do that. So she's like talk about it, whatever, because early on with um, her disease, we didn't know what was going on. She moved in with us during COVID because she was falling a lot. You know, I called her one day after work and it was like 5.30 at at night and she was still on the ground from, she fell taking her lunch back to the couch and she was still on the ground at, you know, at 5.30 at night and she was three and a half hours away. And so I said, mom, have you thought about like, calling a friend to help she's you know she was on uh, on the farm and so there wasn't like a neighbor that could call or whatever so she called a friend and her friend came over and helped her up and i said i i'm not coming out tonight because it would be too late but why don't you get some things together and why don't you just come to kansas city she couldn't get up because her knees were so bruised from all the falls she had been having that she couldn't get herself up And, and we had had conversations about the milestones ahead So this was my conversation with my mom. I left my job back in, uh, you know, 2015. Here it was, you know, the beginning of 2020. So it's been five years. And we had talked about the milestones. And like, if you have more than a fall a day, you're supposed to call me. But the milestones were that if that happened on a regular basis, then we were going to be talking about, you know, maybe we need to be doing something different. Maybe we need to look at having somebody come in to check on you because there you are, you know, you're outside of town. So she, I think she knew in the back of her head that if she told me how many times she had been fallen, that, you know, she'd lose her independence. And that is actually what happened. But her doctor thought it was normal pressure hydrocephalus. So that's like your spinal fluid goes up, processes, you know, you get the uh, metabolism in your brain. And they thought that maybe that was not working properly. So we did that test twice. It was inconclusive the first time, and then it was negative the second time. And so that's when we went to the neurologist and the neurologist gave us the the diagnosis that it was mild cognitive impairment. So that's the beginning of it. But then we did the cat, the, the PET scan and the PET scan showed that it was what's called late disease, part Parkinson's and part Alzheimer's. So when my mom got that news, it was pretty devastating for her. And it was in the middle of COVID. Once she got vaccinated, she just, she made a decision one day that she was gonna move into one of those places where there's other people going through what she was going through. And so she's in assisted living memory care now. I've been keeping records of everything that we went through. And so I have a a little handbook I'd be happy to share with you or, you know, anybody who's going through this. I've shared it with a number of people. I worked with this with some folks at Aspire, too. They were very helpful with my mom at the time when my dad died. I don't know if this was related to her disease progression or not. But the reason why I left my CEO job is because my mom came to my house My sister was getting married. I was making no-baked cookies for the rehearsal dinner. My mom passes out on my kitchen table and we call 911. You know, the ambulance comes. She goes overnight. They want to keep her because they can't find anything wrong with her. They kept her overnight. They couldn't find anything wrong with her the next day. She ends up going to the wedding and everything's fine. And it seems like nothing's wrong. But I had a conversation with my husband. I said, you know, I just, I don't want to look back and wish I would have paid attention to what was going on. So I go into my board chair and I say, you know, here what I am, 40, I don't know, 40 something, I'm going to retire, quote unquote, I'm going to retire. And I asked them if they would become my first client and they did, but I just needed to work part-time until we could figure out like what was going on with my mom. Through that process, we discovered that, you know, some of these things may or may not have been related, but she was having a vasovagal reaction. And you've seen that happen. Like, so when you see something so it's like somebody sees blood and they pass out. That's a vasovagal reaction. My mom was having a vasovagal reaction to not knowing if there was enough money. My dad had always been the primary wage earner, and my mom was always the bookkeeper and the one who wrote the checks. And she knew with my sister getting married, the stress was up because she just didn't know if there was enough money because otherwise she was in good health. So I don't know if these things are all related, but after that happened, we got her with our financial planner. And then once she heard that, with eighty-five percent certainty, you can live your life the same way until you're a hundred. I got my mom back once she was able to deal with that anxiety in a way that she had some some certainty about it. She could go uh, along, you know, just live her life. What I've done is just to try to capture a way for people to track and record some of these things along these milestones to help navigate you know, caring for an aging loved one. And so that you're a little bit more prepared for, you know, what happens. When my dad died, he died in in intestate. So my mom had to go through probate because the will was in a locked tackle box in the barn. We had to go through a bunch of silliness for two years, but it was probably therapeutic for my mom. And in hindsight, gave her something really to do. I put this little thing together so that you know, maybe other people won't have to go through things like that. Like, I think my mom spent one hundred fifty thousand dollars going through that whole process. You know, you have got to have a bunch of legal stuff done, and they got to do a bunch of things. My dad was kind of an old school guy, so we had to, you know, all of the non liquid assets for the real estate and stuff, and we had to go get those appraised. And you know, it was just a it was a long drawn out process. So, you know, maybe there's some tips or helpful things. I'd be happy to share that. You know, going through the process of the diagnosis with my mom, and then you know, just trying to be her companion along the way and help her with, you know, the best process. Everybody's journey is different with Alzheimer's or, you know, mild cognitive impairment. For my mom, the first thing to go was executive function. I'd take her mail down there. She was supposed to write out the checks. This is what she'd always done for 50 years, being married to my dad. Five hours later, she hadn't even written the check right because she just couldn't get the numbers with the right person on a check and so it might have be filled out to the right company but it wouldn't have the right amount or it wouldn't have the you know the written part out so i'm just trying to do for my mom the golden rule
2: i knew about the alzheimer's piece of it i I didn't know the parkinson's was it's even it's a double whammy because you're losing both you know your mind and your body at the same time because of that uh disease so god it's a
0: Well, so I'll tell you what my mom told me, getting old sucks. (laughs) (laughs) And that's the first time I think I've heard her cuss, like in her life. I remember like getting really mad as a 13 year old kid and walking out the front door and slamming the door and say, I'm just going to go ride my freaking bike, you know, except I use the other word. And like, I got in trouble for that because we just didn't do that. So to hear her now say getting old sucks, like it really does.
2: Thank you for helping others uh, based on your experience with your mom. And we'll put the, some link to the handout, uh, the ebook that you wrote on it to help others, you know, since you left, uh, bio Kansas, um, you, you've been in basically the fractional executive, executive coaching space. I'll say I loved your title at, uh, uh, aspire wealth, uh, managers or management chief connector. That's one of the best titles I I think I've ever seen, but kind of walk us through, you know, briefly through that journey and what you're doing today.
0: I'm really building what I wish would have existed when I left my CEO job at BioKansas. I guess I've been fractional. I just didn't know that's what it was called. So my first fractional role was with BioKansas. I helped them with transitioning to their next CEO. So that was like um, a three or six month engagement. And then I became an interim CEO for um, Pete Limpke, Pete was um, in his last year of buyout from um, CBiz and was wanting to start another executive search firm, but, you know, had to wait out the five years. And so he had me help him with building a, a new executive search firm. And so I helped him with, you know, establishing the first few clients and learned about executive search through him. I mean, I'd already gone through it with his part- business partner, Jay Meshke, who placed me in the BioKansas role. Then I got picked up by a company called Sekasui Xenotech, a bioscience company. I had known about them, kind of a really great, incredible company in Kansas City. Andrew Parkinson at KU had kind of the father of xenobiotics. This company, I started out, you know, within their products division, helping them. They just wanted to have a clear and defined sales process. So we did that. Then their vice president of commercial operations left the company and they needed somebody for that role. And it was like, I could probably do that. So I, I stepped into that role and I was there for um about four years. You know, it kind of started out with a small and then it just kind of grew. And then um my mom started to have some more health problems and I was traveling at that point and you know couldn't really be present for that. So I shifted from there to aspire. They were also looking for some definition in their sales process. So I don't know. I kind of see some patterns here about helping people with their revenue path, their entering of new markets, their sales process. I started thinking, you know, is as at Aspire, why don't I build what I wish would have existed? Because I kept running into people who were in the same situation as me. About a year ago, Esther George, in her last state of the Fed before she retired, and she said something that really struck a chord with me. That the biggest cohort that left the workforce during COVID was the 50 plus cohort, and that her concern as president of the Fed in Kansas City was what effect is that going to have on our economy? How are you going to fill that gap of knowledge and experience? Because basically, you know, if you look at the demographics, you've got the baby boomers, this huge, you know, number of people. Whatever, ten thousand people. What well, you told me, the statistic, ten thousand people
2: yeah 10,000 people a day in the US turns 65 and i think right now the average age of a baby boomer is around 58 years old so yeah
0: okay so you take that statistic along with what she was saying that the largest cohort that's leaving the workforce is the 50 plus cohort which is you know comes down a little bit on the age scale right so 50 50 and over um and you look at the next demographic is gen x and it was a much smaller generation there weren't as many people And then you have this big millennial cohort. So you've got 15 years there with not as many people who have the day-to-day work experience in the roles and the titles and the jobs with getting the kinds of experience for qualified quote unquote leadership. So I think that that's what she was really intimating. And so it just triggered something for me. So what if we built this stable for fractional executives, senior leaders and business leaders? And, you know, this wasn't my idea. I got brought in by my partners, the people that you were talking to right at the beginning. Brendan Filbert and Mark Blackton had approached me about putting together the demand side for this equation. Since 21, they have been doing this freeway to fractional. So helping senior leaders come out of corporate roles, C-suite, VP, senior director, whatever those titles are, coming out of those roles and either burn out or they have issues like I had, where they wanna be present with a family member, need to have some flexibility on time. So they don't want a traditional nine to five and they wanna be fractional. So they put together a course called Freeway to Fractional and we've got about 30, 35 people that have completed those courses and are available to us as fractionals, but how do you do the demand side? In Kansas City, there are probably a dozen companies that offer fractional CFO, but what about the other roles? What about the CIO? What about the head of HR? What about the head of revenue, sales, marketing? What about the head of systems or process improvement? You know, there are these different supply chain operations. There are these different roles on the C-suite that make up a leadership team for a company. And depending on what kind of company it is, there are different kinds of roles. But what if we could get that 50 plus cohort off of whatever it is that they're doing, and bring them back into this form of an engagement and then put that out there and available. Make it easier for companies to find the talent they need. Make it easier for this next generation of leaders to have somebody to walk alongside them that maybe has a little bit more experience in this or that, but you don't have to break the bank. You don't have to pay $250,000 to get somebody like that on your payroll because this model is different than that. So it saves your payroll. You know, it's not a long-term commitment. It's a near-term commitment. So you see that as your company is growing, that you've got this gap, it's a way to, on an interim basis, try this out. If I could have a head of operations or a head of IT that knew how to integrate these systems and get that project done or get that process in place, or maybe you need to have policies and procedures, what if we could put that in place and then grow the company that way? And so this is just a different way to grow, a different way to look at filling that talent void. So that's what I'm doing now.
2: You know, I've worked with uh, plenty of startups. One was the largest funded startup of all time, Sprint PCS it was in $1995, it was $10 billion startup. So that aside, you don't have the money to hire, like you said, hire a CXO in whatever functional area because you can't pay the, the dollars, but fractional makes so much sense. When I was actually interviewing uh, Aritana Therapeutics, when they were, you know, late stage startup, hadn't commercialized yet. At the same time I was interviewing, they had a a manager of IT. It was another open position, you know, and I looked at their C-suite, you know, and there's no CIO or CTO, I'm like, in my interview process, I said, I'm going to be working with this person but you need a strategic IT strategic roadmap that maps to the business plan because you need somebody senior. You have a chief legal officer, you have a chief scientific officer, you have a, what, you know, every, everything, but you don't have a CIO, CTO. I'm like, you need somebody strategic to build the plan. But yeah, I love the, uh, I love the fractional space. I think it's a, you know, it, it, it just makes sense for, you know, late-stage startups, high-growth companies that can't afford a full-time executive.
0: If this would have been available when I moved from a producer role into a CEO role, I mean, I kind of did it because we found um, we were officing at ECJC and we were able to tap into the CFO of ECJC to help us with our financials. But if if there would have been somebody available who in a fractional role to run operations or run projects for for Bio I mean, I mean, I think that there's a demand for this. I think there's a clear need for this that can really help leaders who are in roles that want to have the skills and experience of a more senior leader But not full time.
2: Yeah, and I think the other thing is it helps people that are aging out or really are basically sick of the corporate bullshit. So they've spent 30 years working for a company or 40 years or whatever the number is, and they're just like, I don't want to deal with the politics anymore. And this, you know, I somebody just hired a new CEO. I'm, you know, this person's going to change things. I, 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 you know, this is my fourth CEO, and you know, 10 years, and they want to still contribute their professional knowledge and add value to companies. And this allows them to do that also in a, in a fractional way.
0: It does. But we're vetting the talent pool for people who are maybe not so much that, then maybe they did get burned out or whatever. But it's mostly people who are givers, people who have with an abundance mentality, people who for whatever their life circumstances, just such that they um, aren't able to do the full-time thing or don't want to do the full-time thing. Maybe they are taking a downshift, you know, to gradually get out, but they don't want to get out. I mean, my dad told me he never wanted to quit working. He never wanted to retire and he was able to God bless him. You know, he was able to work until the day he died. Wow. I just think that there are so many possibilities with this cohort of people to just plug into companies who are, on a growth trajectory, but they just maybe need to have a little bit more experience here, a little bit more experience here. It doesn't have to be a full-time, it doesn't have to be a long-term engagement. So I'm really excited to see where we go with it. I mean, this is early. I mean, we just, um, we pulled the partnership together last year, just formalized the agreement. have got our business plan in place and we're executing those agreements with fractionals after the whole vetting process. We've done eight deals so far. So we're in our infancy.
2: I'd love to help two groups of people with great leadership advice from great leaders like yourself, Angela. Uh, First group is the recent college graduate. What advice would you have for them as they're starting to enter the workforce, looking for their first job and beginning their professional career journey?
0: You know, I really like the term being open. So like, you're maybe not gonna get the best job ever. You're maybe maybe not gonna be in the ultimate role that you desire to be in, but like, okay, I'm a maximizer. I like to squeeze the juice out of what you got. Figure out what is one really awesome thing you can learn, you can do, you can become proficient at in that role. And then be open to the opportunities. If you love that company, you love the culture, maybe see if there are other opportunities to do more of those things. That's something that you really latch onto and love and kind of keep a running list of the things that fire you up and get you excited and see if you can spend more time doing that. Because in that transformational time for me at ADP, when I figured out that if you just do more of the stuff that you're naturally good at and try to get better at that, you give yourself energy, but it's infectious. You also help the people around you you also help the company achieve more. And it takes less energy because you're just naturally generating it from within.
2: Yeah, no, I love that. Um, So you were a leader, you know, from an org chart perspective, you know, in your early 20s, right? So you had somebody that reported to you and you know most people don't get that opportunity that early in their career when somebody reaches that point so from a hr perspective you are in charge of people and uh, you become you know an official leader i guess from a like i said from a administrative point of view but what what leadership advice do you have for them in terms of you know uh you know starting uh the process of becoming a great leader
0: First of all, I didn't know that that wasn't the way it worked. Like, I just didn't know. So I think being humble, the gift that you're given in a leadership role is in some respects, you're, you know, you're responsible for other people's lives. I think what I really have enjoyed about being a leader, it's helping people become the best version of themselves so that they can achieve extraordinary results. And as a leader of people, it's all about your people. If you can help your people Figure out what it is that fires them up, what it is that gets them motivated, what it is that makes their soul sing. And if you can keep them in those roles, and it's not going to be 100% of the time. I mean, I think I've kind of found that 70 or 80% of the time is enough to keep those batteries charged. So if you get people in those roles, it's kind of like good to great. Go back to all those things. It's like getting people in the right seat on the bus. So you know you've got the right people and getting them in the right role so that they can get charged up. And then we will all have to do stuff that we don't like to do. But if we try to keep that at the minimum, but provide opportunities for people to grow and learn, and then encourage your, the people who you have the great honor of working with or leading, helping them get where they're going. Those were my best leaders, the ones who were really helpful in getting me where I was going.
2: Well, Angela, I love your career. I love what you're doing in the uh, fractional space. And I I just love your uh, attitude of gratitude and uh, spirit of helping others. So thank you so much for being on the corporate couch today.
0: Thank you, too.
2: I just thought Angela was a great guest. We've interviewed a lot of people, and I know a lot of people professionally, obviously, and personally. I don't think I've ever seen anyone that I know or that's been a guest that had the career jump that Angela had. Titles mean nothing and they do mean something. But you know, when you're at ADP, you're a major account district manager, very successful. She loved the job and a recruiter approached her to become the CEO president of BioKansas. So whatever you wanna say, to be a district manager at ADP, and go to a CEO president position of an organization, not even in the same industry, Mm -hmm. even like, it's not Not even close. (laughs) Like you're going into the (laughs) PEO, you know, uh, payroll uh, industry. You're like in, you know, science
1: (laughs) Yeah, different.
2: And I, and what I loved about that jump and Angela herself is she believed in herself. She knew what her strengths were. And she said, I'm going for this. I can do it. Mm-hmm. And I thought, I, it, it's just unbelievable. Then she competes and and she's working with uh, you know one of the big recruiting firms, executive recruiting firms in Kansas City. They say, look, everybody else you're competing against is a PhD. You're like, you're the outside candidate. You're the out-of-the-box candidate. Then they go through the interview process. They say, we like you. But you know what? We want to compare you to other out of the box <laughs> candidates that don't have PhDs because the first time she's competing against all PhDs and she comes out of that process, getting the job, becoming the president, CEO of BioKansas. I just think it's a great story and that's it shows you the belief in yourself, knowing your strengths, you know, the whole Socrates know thyself and she just... And and, ha- and her whole career changed after that. Uh, it just really—it's—it's it's an amazing—it's
1: an amazing story. It really is, and it's inspirational. And it tells people that uh, this is this is possible. You know, you could be, you could be considered for a CEO position, or you may want to put yourself in a position of being considered for a CEO. What's the worst that can happen? First of all, you could get the job. Second of all, you might not get the job, but the experience uh, that you acquire. And even being considered for the job is uh, something that's tangible and is important. So, you know, here's another example of somebody that started a business during COVID. Uh, We've had dozens of, of those in our time together on the corporate couch. One of the things that they discovered was that the cohort of people that left during COVID, the biggest cohort are the 50 and over people and what that means is this isn't any big surprise but it's certainly something to consider for uh business is that people and, and my, that's my age uh in the uh baby boomer generation are literally leaving in droves um and so what what was the 10,000
2: 10,000 10, people a day in the US turned 65 and i i believe the average age of a baby boomer right now is about 58 years old yeah
1: yeah and uh, so there's a, there's a bunch of them that are, uh, they're, they're going to be leaving really soon. And we need, to, we need to judge whether or not the next generation, the millennials and the Gen Zs and those kind of people, are ready and are equipped to take over that big vacuum that's going to be left by my generation and your generation leaving the workforce uh, that's, a, that's going to be a challenge that's going to be in the business for years. And of course, then she sees that as an opportunity to create a business to offer fractional C-suite executives uh, that perhaps had left the, uh, the corporate world for whatever reason and now want to ease their way back into it, or at least are available to ease their way back into it by being a fractional executive.
2: Yeah, Angela's great. What leader are you gonna use today to impart some leadership advice on our great listeners?
1: Well, today we're gonna go to that great baseball philosopher named Yogi Berra. And uh, one time when he was talking about jazz music, which I'm sure is something that he was an expert on, he said this, 90% of all jazz is half improvisation. The other half is the part people play while others are playing something they've never played with anyone who ever played that part. So if you play the wrong part, it's right. If you play the right part, it might be right if you play it wrong enough. But if you play it too right, it's wrong.
2: Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Corporate Couch. If you enjoy the podcast, I would love for you to take two minutes out of your day to rate us five stars and write a review. Please join me next week to learn from another great leader sharing their professional journey and insights.